Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We're continuing our rewatch of The Leftovers today as we hit episode three from season two, Off Ramp. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I want to know who wants a hug here on Big Squid. joining me for a really full-on episode of The Leftovers, an episode that once again I remembered but somehow kind of forgot how devastating and powerful it was on the first viewing. A quick heads up before we get into that though, uh, I'm a guest on Josh Earl's Patreon episode of his podcast and I'm also guest Charlie Clawson opposite the real Will Anderson on the latest Fofop. It seems my episodes are being nicknamed the Hamoverse and since you know me so well you will understand how much that really tickles me. I love it. So if you would like more of me, if you feel like you're not getting enough of my ramblings in your ears, head over to their respective sites and you can check out my guest spots. Okay, this is a full-on episode. Let's get into the leftovers and discuss off-ramp. You brought her all the way to Miracle, Texas to feel safe. No safer here than anywhere else. You said it was special. Now I'm waking up to earthquakes and missing teenagers. What you got, Kevin, isn't love. It's damage control. I love my family. I love them. You ever miss it? The quiet. The 9,261, and we're spared. We're not safe. Whatever you're looking for, it ain't here.
Wherever you go, there you are. We begin with Laurie cleaning her car. She looks busy as she sets up her office, fills a jar full of Nicorette gum, determined, her mind intent on the job at hand. While she does this, we see the guilty remnant going about their day, and one woman in particular who looks incredibly sad, lost. Her name is Susan, and she's very important, although she doesn't know this. She's approached by another member who writes her a question. Are you okay? This member is Tommy, Laurie's son. Later, he finds Susan and whispers in her ear, come with me. He leads her to a building and down past some offices to a room where Laurie conducts a therapy group for people who were members of the guilty remnant. Would you like to join us? Laurie asks. She sets up Susan in the office in a place to stay for the moment, giving her a phone with one number, Laurie's number, so she can call if she needs help. Laurie tells Susan, if you let me help you, I can help you come back. What if I can't? Susan writes. Later that night, Laurie is watching footage online of Holy Wayne. He's younger, telling people he has this gift, the gift of hugging people's pain away. Tommy wakes from his sleep on the lounge and takes a swig of bourbon. Laurie is worried about him being involved with the guilty remnant, but he believes this is the only way he can get close enough to help people escape their situation. Back at the office, Laurie is typing. Susan wakes up and looks over Laurie's shoulder at what she is writing. For the first time in a long time, she speaks. What are you writing? Susan asks. Laurie replies that it is her book and it is about us. The following day, the landlord asks Laurie for extra money because people are staying overnight. Laurie is struggling to pay the rent, but she promises she can have it to him by the end of the week. In the next therapy session, three members of the Guilty Remnant enter and stand imposingly, staring at the group, in particular Susan. One of them writes a message, but Laurie takes it, screws it up and throws it on the floor. She isn't intimidated by them and throws them out. Laurie isn't intimidated, but you can see Susan is still struggling. Later that day, while Tom returns to the Guilty Remnant, Laurie works on her book while sitting in a cafe. She's momentarily distracted as she watches a mother with her child. That child looks like it could possibly be the age of what Laurie's baby should have been if it hadn't disappeared on that fateful day. Laurie drives Susan back to her home and watches from afar as her child runs to greet her and her husband looks on in disbelief that his wife has returned. Susan will talk about this with the group in their next therapy session. She's struggling with the concept that her husband wants her home, but is still angry. Like you, says Susan, directing her comment to Laurie. Laurie smiles. I'm not angry, she replies. Your family wants to forgive you, she adds. Tommy suddenly appears with a new member of the guilty remnant ready to leave the cult. Working that night, the TV on, a report is made about a man in Perth, Australia, who was returned from the dead and can now no longer die. His name is David Burton, the same David Burton that the man at the top of the tower in Jarden wanted a letter posted to. When Tommy arrives home, Laurie lets him know that Jill texted. She wants to see her daughter, but Tommy lets her know it isn't the right time. She asks if she writes a note for Jill, will he pass it on? Also, she asks if she can drive him to catch up with her. She'll just stay in the car while he goes in to see his sister. The next day, while Tommy meets with Jill, Laurie sits in the car. She notices a mark on the window that she attempts to clean off, but Tommy returns before she can finish. He tells Laurie he passed on the letter to Jill and Laurie smiles. Maybe her family wants to forgive her too. 
We see the same look that was shared between mother and daughter from the previous episode, but we now see it from Laurie's point of view. It is sad, but hopeful, and now we can see what she was thinking. When they return to the office, they find all of their belongings on the street and the doors locked. Laurie is too far behind in her rent, and she asks for, at the very least, the return of her laptop with her book on it. The landlord denies that he has it. That night, Laurie stakes his house, and when he goes out, she breaks in. What she doesn't realise is that his wife and son are at home. She creeps through the house and sees the son playing games on her laptop. She runs in, grabs the laptop, runs out to her car and takes off. Laurie is laughing. She's exhilarated. As she drives, she sees two members of the guilty remnant standing in the street. She stops. They all make eye contact. Laurie revs the engine of the car and takes off, hitting the members as they bounce off her car. We next see Laurie back at the same car wash from the opening of the episode, cleaning her car again. How many members of the guilty remnant has she hit in recent times? This is bizarre behaviour for someone who claims to not be angry. Laurie is with Susan and her husband, helping them both acclimatise to their relationship. The husband is afraid he'll say something that will make Susan leave again. Laurie points out it wasn't him, it was the guilty remnant that encouraged Susan to leave. Susan faces her husband and promises she won't be leaving. Meanwhile, Tommy is back with the guilty remnant looking for people to help. Unfortunately, someone literally and figuratively blows the whistle and he's abducted, handcuffed in the back of a van and driven somewhere unknown. Eventually, the van stops and when the doors are opened, a bright light seeps in, revealing they are on a road in the middle of nowhere. A car door opens outside and a woman in white walks into the van and closes the door behind her. It is Meg and she silently strips Tommy down, slips off her underwear and forces Tommy to have sex with her. When she is finished, she walks outside and the men who abducted Tommy grab him and drag him out. They douse him in petrol and Meg leans over him, a lighter in hand, the flame flickering. She lights a cigarette, takes a long drag and says to Tommy, tell your mum Meg says hello. They then drive off and leave Tommy alone. Laurie has purchased a brand new suit for a meeting with book publishers. It appears her novel already has some interest. But when she arrives home, she finds Tommy there, distraught, demanding to know who Meg is. He's worried about the guilty remnant because they know something they don't, that something is going down. He's worried what they're doing isn't working. But Laurie calms him. Her book will be published. Everything is going to be okay. Susan wakes at home. She still has that faraway look on her face. She watches without much interest as her son enjoys a Roadrunner cartoon where Wile E. Coyote holds up a sign as he hovers in the air off the side of a cliff. The sign reads, How about ending this cartoon before I hit? Susan goes to a fancy dinner and watches as the maitre d' fillets a dead fish. Her husband talks, but she's not listening. While they prepare for a day down at the beach, her husband continuing to talk, she finds the scrunched up letter that Laurie took from the guilty remnant member and threw to the floor. She finally opens it up and it reads, Any day now. Later, they're driving in traffic and while her husband is distracted and her child is on his iPad, Susan wordlessly drives into the oncoming traffic, ignoring the cries of her husband, and drives into a truck, killing them all. 
Laurie finds out what happened to Susan while she sits in the waiting room at the publishers. She's about to cancel the meeting when the agent comes out and takes her into the meeting. They love the book, but there will be changes that are needed. An editor asks why she never explained the reason for the guilty remnant smoking all the time. Laurie explains that they didn't really tell you why. The agent wants to know what the guilty remnant believe. He makes references to other cults, including the whack job in Australia. It appears David Burton is really making a name for himself. The agent needs Laurie to explain in the book what she was feeling at the time, especially when they brainwashed her and she was about to die with Jill in the fire. What did it feel like the first time she spoke in a year to her ex-husband calling out Jill's name as he's the only one who can save her and she is incapable of helping her child just watching from afar? Laurie snaps in the meeting and leaps across the room attacking the agent. She's incarcerated and eventually Tommy has to come and pay her bail. She's distraught, but Tommy explains she needs to pull it together because the people from her therapy group are at Laurie's home and they need her help, especially after the death of Susan. We're losing because we don't give them anything to fill the gaps, Tommy explains to his mum. Laurie has an idea. Laurie tells the therapy group what happened when Paddy recruited her and how she lost Jill. But this is mainly a story for another day because she wants Tommy to tell his story. He talks to the group about Holy Wayne and the moment he was alone with the baby, the mother having run off and leaving him with the responsibility. He says he asked for help, not from God or anyone else, just help in general. And then in his story, Holy Wayne appeared and told him what to do, where to take the baby and confessed he hadn't been scared in a very long time. He also told Tommy he was going to die the next day, but he could pass on his abilities to Tommy if he wanted them. Tommy took on Holy Wayne's power, but was too afraid to use it, too afraid of what it might mean. He apologises to the group for being doubtful, for not using this gift. Tommy stands up, arms outstretched, and looks at everyone in the therapy group. Who wants a hug? So just like poor old Wiley Coyote holding up the sign asking you to finish the cartoon before he hits the ground, thus in some way sparing him the idea of what is about to happen to him, if you turn this episode off at maybe the midway point, you could almost convince yourself that everything is looking up. Laurie is leading the way against the guilty remnant. Tommy might be struggling, but he's doing good work as well with his mum. Laurie's book is well on the way, and heck, she's even having a good time running over cult members. If you really wanted to, you could also convince yourself that Susan is on the right path. Turn off as she goes home. But to turn off the episode would be not only a disservice, it would also be a lie. Not dissimilar to the world we live in today, there are no easy answers, no simple ways forward. For every incremental step forward, there are devastating steps backwards, as characters do their best to convince themselves they're on the right path. But all it takes is a different perspective to know this isn't the case. Take the moment we see where Laurie and Jill lock eyes. In the previous episode, from Jill's perspective, there is still anger at her mother. She doesn't really understand her, possibly has no real interest in finding common ground with her. Yet in this episode, from Laurie's point of view, she is one step closer to reconciliation with the daughter that she still loves very much. How do we know this? Because the advice she gives Susan about her family wanting to forgive her is also what Laurie is telling herself. Maybe if Laurie wasn't projecting what she wants to hear, she would maybe notice that Susan is struggling, despite her world appearing to return to normal. This episode feels quite different in tone from the previous two episodes, and that makes sense to me. We're out of Miracle and back in the world we experienced last season, and this area is a damaged place. 
While Jarden obviously has its own issues, there is still a sense of hope that there is uh, a, a, something special about there. That there is something beyond everyone's knowing, and it kind of gives them a sense of comfort. But this place... It's, it's just too damaged to move forward, and it's a good reminder of what is happening elsewhere. I like being reminded of this world, just as I find the rhythm for the new town, and if you're going to go back there, who better to take you through this experience than Laurie? I love the character of Laurie, but just like the rest of the characters, she can be difficult to like at times. She can be difficult to understand. Her actions sometimes do a disservice, but in many ways, it is easy to understand how she ended up in this place today. Amy Brenneman's performance is amazing. You can often see the pain she hides slipping through the corners of her mouth or the distance in her eyes. Considering this is the episode where she's spoken the most, it is amazing to consider how well we already know her. In an episode where characters attempt to be honest and forthright, it is fascinating that the moment of pure truth comes from poor Susan, who might not be capable of returning to the world but can see the rage that is bubbling under the surface of Laurie. And it is a rage. Considering we open this episode with her cleaning the car, you have to wonder how many members of the Guilty Remnant she's hit. Even the way she reacts after stealing her laptop back from the landlord's son is one of manic triumph, the Buddha sticker incongruous with her actions. In this episode, Laurie is attempting to help people and believes she is doing the right thing, but that doesn't stop her from letting her son return to the smoking cult to help Laurie on her crusade. How can she not see that he's struggling when he wakes from asleep and immediately takes a slug of booze? Of all the people in her life, her son could probably use some... I don't know, downtime at a beach or somewhere up on a mountain realigning his chakras. (laughs) Laurie might be saving people from the guilty remnant, but in many ways she's doing this to atone for her own sins, her own actions that nearly led to the death of her daughter. In a way, she's as maniacal and blinkered as she was when she was in the guilty remnant. But because she's trying to help those people, we kind of give her more of a pass, but her actions, in truth, haven't really changed that much. Then there is Meg, the woman that Laurie recruited and then easily moved on from. In many ways, Meg is Laurie's guilty remnant child, and now that Laurie has abandoned the cult and Meg, she's angry. She's militant. She's not dissimilar to Jill, but where Jill would rather just move on with life, Meg will now fashion her world to suit her beliefs. The scene with Tommy is hard to watch. Sexual assault is never easy to experience in any type of media or entertainment. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is just a bit too much for people. But for me, TV and movie viewing isn't always meant to be easy. And there are greater themes and ramifications at play here. Watching Meg exert her power over Tommy, who by the end appears seduced by the act, even just for a moment, is the ultimate revenge against Laurie. To terrorise him with the flame while he is doused in petrol and then use it as a way of getting a message to her shows Laurie now who is in charge. And with Meg in charge, maybe Laurie can't win in this situation because she doesn't quite know the game she's playing and she's still lying to herself about what she believes and feels. Tommy is correct when he tells his mum that they know something, that the guilty remnant have something to give. What they have is absolute belief, and that emboldens their actions. That gives people who are lost a sense of certainty that they can then take advantage of. When you believe the world has already ended, what do you have to lose? 
The death of Susan and her family is one of the hardest to endure in all three seasons. Her husband seems like a decent man, a good person, but you can tell by the way he talks that he fundamentally doesn't understand where Susan is with this life. Even though this is a TV show, and I know that Susan's a little bit older, there's a look in her eyes that I recognise, and it is very similar to one that I've experienced in women in their mid-30s who out of nowhere decide to break up with partners who, on the surface, seem perfectly fine. I think it is a really fascinating thing that's not often talked about, but it's it's that moment when someone decides that even though their partner might be a good and reliable person, there has to be something more to life. There has to be something else. You can't be prepared to be retired when you're still so young. There has to be more out there, something to aim for, something to yearn for. And the look in Susan's eyes in just about every scene says that she has little hope of recovery. And she knows it deep down, even though Laurie does not. It's such a specific look. It is something that I'd love to talk to uh, a therapist or a psychiatrist about. Maybe we'll get them on this podcast and, and discuss this more. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever experienced that yourself? It's a fascinating thing to think about. So, Laurie doesn't know this. Laurie doesn't recognise this. She cannot fathom this. Her inability to embrace that she might be wrong is what leads to her downfall. That anger that Susan saw finally explodes at the publisher as everyone there is dismissive of the guilty remnant as just a bunch of whack jobs. They reduce them to throwaway lines as people that you can easily write off. And to do that to Laurie is to deny her experience, to belittle what made her join in the first place, and then decide to leave. Regardless of their poor behaviour and their bad choices, everyone in the guilty remnant is on some level damaged people, attempting to come to terms with the most significant moment in human history. Maybe if Laurie had been more honest with herself, she could have argued that point clearly to the agents and the publishers. But she hasn't been honest with herself. She's been incapable of finding her truth, and when that inarticulation is made apparent, there is nothing left for her to do other than attack the agent and definitely not be able to return that suit. In the end, after Tommy picks his mother up from jail, he tells her she has to get her act together and that they can't take away the guilty remnant and not replace it with something else, something that will give the people hope and support. That they take the idea of Holy Wayne's ability to hug away the pain is a dangerous gambit. We've already seen what happens when people tell themselves stories to cope in this world, and we've experienced what happens when people convince those around them of those same stories. Homes are broken into and dummies are left as reminders of the departed. People burn in fires. Innocent people are shot on secret ranches. Men hear voices. Women pay street workers to shoot them in the chest. This is a world that is fueled by stories and if you don't know where your story is going, you could be in a lot of trouble. Tommy is already on edge and his mother is right there alongside him. It all begins with an idea, then a decision, and it finishes with a hug. If Laurie and Tommy aren't careful, they could easily find themselves lost in a story with no clear destination in sight. Let's get into the squid bits. This will be a little bit lighter than everything we've been talking about in today's episode. Uh, The Looney Tunes episode is the 1956 cartoon G-Wiz. has a lot of Zeds 
on the end. Gee whiz. That's a fun thing to say. Uh, Laurie tells the guilty remnant members you're not welcome here, just as Paddy told Kevin that in the pilot. This is the first episode not to feature Matt and Nora, while Kevin only appears in footage from previous episodes. This is Maxence. I think it's Maxence, how you'd pronounce it. Maxence Serin's cover of the Pixies' Where Is My Mind, that beautiful piano version. That helps kind of tie Kevin and Laurie together after he was listening to the original version of the song in the previous this episode. You can find this version on Serin's amazing Novo Piano. Look out also for the beautiful version of Arcade Fire's No Cars Go as well. Actually, everything on it's great, but they're my two favourites. Uh, keep in the back of your head all the David Burton info. Just keep it in the back of your head. Why are you asking me more questions? You can see the cover for What's Next in the background of Laurie's scene at the publishers. The book is also mentioned. uh, If you don't remember who that is, that's the author that Nora gave the dressing down to in the episode Guest. The agents complained about not understanding the guilty remnants' motivations serves as meta-commentary on the criticisms of season one's treatment of the GR. I never really understood those criticisms. I kind of always really, I don't know, I just kind of got it. Uh, I'm not saying it's a... An incorrect criticism, but I I just don't really see it. It just all kind of made sense to me. Anyway, this is my favourite show and I think it's perfect. So, of course, I'm not going to agree with the criticism. Don't even know why I brought it up. <laughs> uh, the whiteboard in the Guilty Remnant house says, God's judgment is upon us. This is the first time the show has overtly referenced the fact that the book version of the Guilty Remnant do believe the departure was, in fact, the rapture. The clips of a younger Holy Wayne are similar to how it plays out in the book. He starts off in churches before moving on to college campuses. Wayne also says his catchphrase from the book, I can take it. These end up as t-shirts he sells that read, Give me your pain, I can take it. Maybe I should get in touch with James Fosdyke and we should put up the the leftovers version of the big squid cover and we could put, I can take it, on the back. Hmm. Do you want merch? Is that something that you'd like? Let me know. I'll, I'll have a chat to Fosdyke. It seems like a funny thing to do, right? Be a funny thing to try and explain to people. Yeah, it's a podcast I listen to that started off as a Watchmen podcast and then turned into uh, a podcast about David Bowie. Now it talks about heaps of things and then there's episodes about The Leftovers and that's why there's a giant squid and he's disappeared. Give me a hug. <laughs> The woman's monologue in the group therapy session bemoaning fake dinner time talk her husband is having with her is reminiscent of Nora trying to relearn the art of small talk in one of the book's chapters. The book cover for Departure 3.0 that is displayed in the publisher's office shows a pair of empty shoes with smoke rising from them, which is also the same concept for the original cover of the novel. The music at the start is Figure Eights by Max Roach and Buddy Rich. kind of gives you a Birdman feel, doesn't it? I wasn't much of a fan of Birdman, so I'm happy to have the feel of it and not too much else. And the track in the car is Spoiler by Hyper, which is perfect for Laurie as she runs over members of the Guilty Remnant. What a crazy thing to realise that Laurie is up to when, uh, when you finally understand why she keeps cleaning her car. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Remember, if you'd like to talk about the episode of The Leftovers, come over to our private Facebook page. Anyone can join. Uh, Malk is over there. He's chatting about uh, the episodes on a regular basis. And the, the reason it's private is that uh, you can discuss uh, anything that's happened for your spoilers with a bunch of really nice and interesting people. 
If you'd like to give the podcast a nice review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Big Squid, that is very much appreciated. I'll be back next week with two more podcasts. I hope you have a great weekend or a great week, depending on when you're listening to this, and that you're looking after yourselves and your loved ones. Because it's been a really full-on episode, I thought we'd go with a lighter quote to check out on. This is a quote that was inspired by the Roadrunner cartoon. It's from Jack Benny, who said, There's only five real people in Hollywood. Everyone else is Mel Blank." And we can breathe out now. Until then. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.